Welcome, 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 everybody. This is Islam for Christians, episode 53, Biblical Figures in Islam, part 6, David. I left off last time talking about Ali, comparing David to Ali. Now, for those who don't know, I assume almost all of you do by now, but Ali was Muhammad's cousin, his son-in-law one of the first handful of people to ever convert to Islam. He was the fourth caliph of the eventual Islamic empire. He was the first imam of Shia Islam. And he was a fierce warrior, pretty much from the get-go. Uh, and so on. You know, certainly an Islamic giant by any standards, arguably the best and holiest among the companions of Muhammad. So, like David... Ali became a legend fighting in an army that was technically led by someone else. He proved himself an epic warrior from his very first battle, just like David. And, you know, and this was actually even before he was a fully grown man, just like David, who, as I'm sure you remember, killed Goliath. But in many ways, David was not like Ali. And he was not like Muhammad either. He was actually both of them. He was a legendary warrior, a king, and a prophet. At least the Islamic David was a prophet. Now, there aren't a ton of narratives about David in the Quran, and they're more about his qualities than his actual deeds. And given this, I think it's safe to assume that the major biblical deeds of David can be considered Islamic, or at least they're not un-Islamic. That includes the running with Goliath, it was David's finest hour, by any standard, um, which is certainly mentioned in the Quran, not surprisingly. And also, and this might be a tad controversial here, so I will just say this as an objective fact, the Quran does not actually deny David's most notorious deed. It doesn't mention his adultery and murder that you, you know we remember from the Bible, but someone Somewhat uncharacteristically, the Quran doesn't go to any lengths to refute any of the negative biblical accounts of David. Usually, the Quran goes out of its way to correct stories of prophets that don't really fit the Muslim sensibility toward how prophets behave and how God protects his prophets. You know, Abraham's wife doesn't really have sex with someone else. Abraham's son willingly agrees to be sacrificed. Moses doesn't screw up and hit the rock instead of talking to it. And so on. All the way up to God not allowing Jesus to be crucified. It's a common pattern in the Muslim version of events. And yet, strangely, we don't see that with David. Now, I'm assuming most of you know what David did that got him in so much hot water with God in the biblical account. David saw a beautiful woman named Bathsheba, who was the wife. <laughs> it. She was the wife of one of his commanders, Uriah. But David sleeps with her anyway, gets her pregnant, then tries to cover up the deed by bringing Uriah home for a night with his wife. But Uriah refuses that pleasure while his men are fighting, so David is in real trouble. Or really, Bathsheba was in real trouble. Adultery was a very, very big deal in those days, like a life-and-death big deal. So to solve this problem, 
David arranges for his army to abandon Uriah on the battlefield and to ensure that he is killed by the enemy. So David committed adultery and then followed that up with cold-blooded murder. This is not a good look for a holy figure, particularly for the man who started a bloodline that would go all the way to Jesus Christ. So one would think the Quran would surely correct this massive slander of God's prophet. But no, nothing. Crickets. In the Quran and the Hadith, nothing. Which basically leaves Muslims with some interesting options when it comes to David. The lack of refutation you know, of something this large usually means it's assumed knowledge. So you could just say, it's probably true. Only God knows best. I don't really understand how a prophet could do such a thing, but maybe God just knows something I do not. Or you could say with certainty that David is a prophet, and therefore, this is clearly untrue. Or, in another way, you could just split the difference and say, perhaps David was a prophet bestowed with the Psalms after the whole Bathsheba incident. Perhaps he repented of that wickedness and then became a pure prophet. But then, what can you make of the young man of faith who killed Goliath, obviously with God's help? Would God be with him, then leave him, then be with him again? Perhaps. It would be a pretty Christian type of story. You know, we tend to be all about redemption and forgiveness, even among prophets and great biblical figures. But really, none of these views is terribly convincing. There's just nothing to go on. Just a Quranic story about David and some sheep that may or may not refer to his sin with, with Bathsheba and Uriah. But ultimately, I'm not sure any of that really matters to the Islamic David. I mean, it does, if you're talking about wider Islamic themes, but not to necessarily to the figure of David himself, just thinking about David, just the character, the man. Because the Islamic David is not about a story. The Islamic David is more about qualities than about deeds or some kind of historical narrative. So there are three key things about the Islamic David I want to talk about that I think you should know. And these differ sometimes greatly from the Judeo-Christian virgin. I'm not including obvious stories that are common to everyone. You know, in Mecca, Jerusalem, and Rome, little David killed large Goliath. We know that. You know, these are some things that are most uniquely emphasized in the Islamic version of David that I'm going to give you here, starting with this. Number one, the Psalms. The Islamic David wrote the Psalms, or in Arabic, the Zabur. These are a little different than, say, the poetry of the Bible, because in the Islamic version, these are a revealed text, just like the Torah or like the Islamic gospel, you know, something that kind of came from on high to the prophet to us. But unlike those books, this is an actual book of songs and poetry. So from an Islamic point of view, it's a bit of a gray area whether the Psalms are still in their divinely inspired form, 
or whether it was corrupted like the other texts that the Muslims consider to be invalid in their current forms. But there just aren't a ton of theological pitfalls in the Psalms. I can't think of a single thing in the Quran that would reject and correct something in the biblical Psalms. Yeah, maybe there is, but I just I can't think of any, and I haven't noticed any. So David comes with an artistic book, kind of like the Quran, but not really. Maybe it's like some parts of the Quran, but David has far more artistic qualities than Muhammad does at least in the Islamic version here, the Islamic version of David. The Islamic David is someone I picture as some kind of warrior poet, the type of guy who has killed many people, but is also spiritually open and at peace with all of God's other creatures, you know, all of God's other creatures. As long as they're not in an opposing army, you know, he's sort of in, in a symbiotic uh, relationship with the rest of the world. And then we have quality number two. The second key quality of the Islamic David was his voice. Not only in that it was beautiful, but he also led the entirety of creation to praise God with him when he sang his psalms. When David sang, the mountains joined him, as did the birds and the animals, kind of like St. Francis. Um, here's a short passage from the Quran. This is Surah 38, 18 to 19. This is the Sahih International Version. Indeed, we subjected the mountains to praise with him, exalting Allah in the late afternoon and after sunrise. And the birds were assembled, all with him repeating praises. David could sing a spiritual note, and he was sensitive to all the things not readily apparent to normal men on the earth. But he was also good at earthly things, with an assist from God, of course. And that leads us to the third key quality of the Islamic David. Now, David was, apparently, an extremely skilled blacksmith. Maybe. I'll get to an alternate take on this in a bit. But for now, let's just talk about David the Smith. And apparently he forged metal with the help of God. You know, this too is actually in the Quran. It's mentioned in Surah 21, verse 80. Uh, it's a bit short on details, but um, it's mentioned again in Surah 34, verses 10 to 11. This is the Pickthal translation. And assuredly, we gave David grace from us, saying, O ye hills and birds, echo his psalms of praise and we made the iron supple unto him, saying, Make thou long coats of mail, and measure the links thereof, and do ye right. Lo, I am seer of what ye do. So we have David here as almost the arsenal of Islam, so to say. You know, this is giving God credit for the military successes of David's reign. You know, God gave the king secret knowledge to arm the Israelites, literally, with previously unknown metal technology. And this part is doubly fascinating because of the timing. 
because David's reign was near the beginning of the Iron Age. And if anyone hadn't seen iron yet, it would have seemed like magic. It would have seemed like these people were getting secrets from another world. But there's something strange here. Now, I'm not an expert on ancient armor, but what the Quran is describing really sounds like chainmail. And if that's the case, the earliest that would have been used, at least among what we have found in archaeological digs, at least to my knowledge, would have been 500 to 600 years after David. Or at least that's when it was common enough to make its way to a well-known battlefield to be found later on. So that leaves some pretty interesting possibilities. The first, and most obvious, is that I know nothing about ancient armor, and I'm way off on this. Easily a possibility. But yet another is that the Quran just made this up mistaking David's time for its own. But then again, if chainmail really was common in David's time, it wouldn't exactly be a divinely inspired and miraculous substance, now would it? The whole point is that it gave the Israelites a massive edge, a technology that did not previously exist. So what you're actually seeing in this Quranic description, it's an extraordinary historical claim that David invented chainmail armor, essentially. The style of armor used up to and including the Middle Ages. And not only that, but it was a divine military technology that was revealed to David, almost like the Psalms were revealed to David. But perhaps I'm overthinking this, or underthinking it or in a completely misguided frame of mind about this whole thing. But the whole point of this iron thing is that David could control iron. He could make it malleable and do incredible things with it. And he could do this because of the miracles enabled by God. So God is with David. And it might just be that simple. He could do with iron what Jesus did with fish and wine, for example. And then maybe this has nothing to do with warfare at all. You know, and, and here's the alternate take that I promised you on this whole thing. There are some interpreters who read this whole business with David and metal forging. They read it metaphorically, as in what the Quran is trying to say, with some poetic license, is that David was the type of person who could make hard things soft. He could take something hard and make something soft. That would fit in with previous descriptions, actually. And someone who could make hard things soft would be able to make a mountain sing, for example, like we mentioned earlier. To make animals disregard their usual instinctive, hard, primal, you know, life survival instinct to stop and sing with this man. And a man who can make sharp things soft, or should I say hard things soft, would also be the type of man, given the Psalms, someone who could take normally hard religious dictates and receive them as songs. And just as you can soften iron to link together something like chainmail, many links which stand strong when softened and put together, a prophet does this with people. A prophet can soften the hearts of men. 
form a community and then defend it in the name of God. That's what Muhammad did in Medina. And that's what David did as the second king of Israel. So those are the qualities of David, you know, which is the prime driving force behind the Islamic David, in my opinion. But I should also mention that there is a story about David that is unique to Islam. And I absolutely have to tell you it. It's pretty mysterious, kind of like Moses and the green man. You heard that in the uh, earlier episodes, but unlike that story, this one is going to need an explanation for almost everyone. If you get this, if you actually understand the message here, great. Uh, full disclosure, I did not get it the first time. Particularly for someone who lives in our time, this is the kind of thing that will go right over your head. When I first read this story, I'll get to it eventually, I read it over and over and over again, trying to figure out what it is that I missed. In the Quran I was reading, there was nothing explaining it. So eventually I had to reference several commentaries and then finally I saw an explanation. And it makes sense. It's just that the lesson here is very subtle and almost invisible to modern ears. So I'm going to tell you the story. You know, listen closely and, and you know, even do it a few times and try to spot what it was that David had to seek forgiveness for in this story, what he did wrong. I'll use the Mustafa Khattab here. It's the closest to modern vernacular and the clearest language for this kind of story. And what sets up the story is that two men who have a disagreement scaled the wall into David's inner sanctuary, wanting the king's judgment on their dispute. This is from Surah 38, verses 22 to 25. Again, See if you can catch what David did wrong here. It might help to pull up these passages and actually look at them if you're more of a visual person, kind of like I am. This is Surah 38, 22 to 25. When they came into David's presence, he was startled by them. They said, have no fear. We are merely two in a dispute. One of us has wronged the other. So judge between us with truth. Do not go beyond it and guide us to the right way. This is my brother. He has 99 sheep and I only have one sheep. Still, he asked me to give it up to him, overwhelming me with his argument. David eventually ruled. He has definitely wronged you in demanding to add your sheep to his. And certainly many partners wrong each other, except those who believe and do good. But how few are they? How few are those people? And at that point, David realized that we had tested him. So he asked for his Lord's forgiveness, fell down in prostration, and turned to him in repentance. So we forgave that for him. And he will indeed have a status of closeness to us and an honorable destination. So, did you catch the problem? Why did God forgive David? 
what did he have to forgive David for? Just think on this for a bit. Look at the words, and it might make it easier. The key words here are, but how few are they? And certainly many partners wrong each other, except those who believe and do good. But how few are they? It sounds like a throwaway complaint. Just something that's there, to be there, almost filler words. But in this lies David's mistake. And it shows the high bar that God set for his wise kings here. The problem was ego, self-centeredness. David was supposed to be mediating a dispute between two people, and he made it about himself. And how did he do that? He was puffing up his own moral superiority, making it about his own righteousness. I'm not one of those people who wrong each other. Oh, if only they were more like me. Now, that's super subtle stuff, but it is a good lesson and an almost impossible standard that God is setting here. But again, how subtle is that? I mean, really subtle. That is one of the least obvious lessons within a parable I have ever seen. And why? I think a big part of it is just our time, or at least mine. In my time, in my place, it seems perfectly natural to make it about yourself. It's just normal where I come from. Everyone does it. You know, it's just the air that we breathe in now. But for those of you who actually got this right away, those who naturally understood the point being made, I would love to hear from you, uh, especially if you're from a culture that's different than mine, maybe a culture that's more primed to get this kind of thing. You know, I'd be fascinated to hear whether this is a modern blindness or just an American one or maybe just me. And also, this story might sound a bit familiar, at least a little bit. You know, a vision with David and sheep? There's a similar story in the Bible, and this similarity has certainly not been lost on Islamic scholars over the years. You know, I've seen a few who regard this as God's reprimand for Bathsheba, and I can see that. If someone had 99 lambs and demanded the single lamb of someone else, it's not too much of a stretch to see that lamb as Bathsheba and the man being wronged as Uriah. And you could therefore conclude that, yes, the Islamic David did a very, very wicked thing. But really, you could also see it as the exact opposite as well, as a veiled correction to that story, using the lambs to invoke the image of the biblical story and then turning David's large sin, his major shame in the Bible, into a very, very tiny infraction. Just the tiniest of sins. And just to make it even smaller, this happens. To, <laughs> this whole thing happens in the world of dreams. It's not, it's not even real. And in that way, the Quran would, indeed, hold up the more typical archetype of the Islamic prophet here. And a prophet can be forgiven an episode of self-centeredness, particularly in a purely hypothetical and fictional situation that was created by God. It was just a dream. 
you know, in tech circles, they might call this a test environment, a sandbox. And I'm not sure sins actually count in a test environment. So you have the ultimate trivial setting, so to speak, in the Quranic story. Now compare this dream scenario to the brutal physical nature of the biblical account. Adultery and murder and war and the death of a child. You know, and in the biblical story, the focus is more on David's hypocrisy than his self-centeredness. It was about David's bizarre blind spot to his own wicked behavior regarding Bathsheba and her husband. And he doesn't realize this himself. The prophet Nathan actually has to tell him. Now, for the record, I have seen nothing of Nathan in the Islamic story. After all, it would be strange to have a different prophet named Nathan telling a messenger of God, David, what to do. That's just too many prophets in the same room. But not in the Bible, of course. You still have the Samuel-Saul type of dynamic here. When David takes the throne, and Nathan isn't just an advisor, he's far, far more than an advisor. And given what Nathan does, he was either near in stature to David or simply fearless, because the biblical account is a blunt story of truth to power. He could have ended up like John the Baptist, really. So keep in mind the Quranic story about David and the lambs, then listen to the biblical account of the lambs and the poor man, and think about whether it actually is similar to the Quranic story. This is the biblical story from 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. 
out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. So contrast that with the Islamic David. You know, here, the biblical David, he looks like a moron, to be honest. I mean, really, how could someone with enough faith to slay Goliath not realize that murder and adultery were bad things? But there's also an extremely human quality to this. Which one of us can't identify at some level? Just think of the distance between your most righteous moments and your most wicked deeds. How did you get from one place to the other? It's just part of the human experience. And I think it happens to everyone. And so it was for David. And he only saw it when a prophet spoon-fed the lesson to him, you know, almost like an ignorant child. So the biblical story is somewhat similar to these, this Islamic story with David, you know, and the dream and the lambs. You know, there's a rich man and a poor man, a sheep unjustly taken, and a lesson learned. I think it's a good bet that the stories are at least somewhat related. But the biblical David is more of a flawed character than the Islamic David, of course, who immediately begs forgiveness for the tiniest of mistakes. He doesn't have to be told. He figures it out himself. And the stakes were infinitely smaller in the Islamic version. Now, the biblical David actually killed somebody. Two people, really, if you count the child. In the Quranic story, not even the men with the sheep were real. And as I said before, this is actually an example of the Quranic archetype of, the prof of a prophet. The biblical David is simply too flawed, too prone to error, too much like regular humans. But from the Islamic perspective... Who would ever trust anything that came from a man like that? And while the Quran doesn't refute David's lesser qualities, it certainly doesn't highlight them. And if the biblical and Quranic stories I just talked about really are related, the Islamic version takes out Nathan. And it takes out David's moral blindness. And it takes out David's greatest sin. In the Quran, David is a wise man. And that wisdom, that prophet-like behavior, is a huge theme in the message that the Quran is trying to convey. David is wise. You know, he was given, through God's gifts and teaching, the wisdom to be a great judge. And God gave him a miracle just to help him gain wisdom. That would be the dream. He would, after all, one day have a son named Solomon which is a name that is pretty much synonymous with wisdom. And that's where we'll pick up in the next part of Biblical Figures in Islam. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.
Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.